we've been studying through Ephesians, and we took a three-week break to talk about marriage and relationships. But now we're back in Ephesians. We finished chapter one of Ephesians, and now we're moving into chapter two. And let me say this by way of introduction. Grace is a wonderful thing. Everybody say grace. Grace. That just comes out the mouth really nicely, the word grace. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Grace is undeserved kindness. And that's going to be the first fill-in on your outline. Grace is undeserved kindness. It's a very, very popular topic in churches because if you're a pastor, it's wonderful to teach on grace because it's only good news. It's about how much God loves us. It's about what he's done for us, all the good things he wants to do in our lives here and now, and all the good things he's stored up for us in eternity with him in heaven. Grace, grace, grace is awesome. Grace doesn't offend anybody. You'll never offend anybody if all you talk about is grace. Grace is awesome. When speaking of Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 14, John wrote this. He says, and the word, Jesus, it's one of the names of Jesus. It also lets us know that Jesus considers himself and the Bible, his word, to be one in the same thing. Jesus, Jesus says, the word, the scriptures, the Bible, those are me. When you read them, you are reading me. They're part of who I am. They're like a limb on my body. It says, and the word, Jesus, became flesh. He became a man and dwelt among us here on the earth. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, you probably want to underline that in your Bibles, and truth, you want to underline truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace, yes. He was also full of truth. In Ephesians 1, we were immersed in grace. It talks about things like we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have the riches of Christ awaiting for us. We have an incredible inheritance waiting for us in heaven. It's very hard to be offended by Ephesians 1 because it's pretty much all grace. And as you head into Ephesians 2, Paul switches gears and starts diving into the truth side of things. I'll write this on your outline. Truth is very simply reality. Truth is reality. It's the information of what is really going on, what is really happening. By way of analogy, can you imagine waking up, and when you wake up, there's somebody right in your face, and they say, isn't it great to wake up? And you go, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it happens a lot, like almost pretty much daily for me. You think, this is a little weird. Now imagine that person adds the little bit of information that you don't remember. You were in a horrific car accident. You've been in a coma for two months, and today is the first day you woke up. It would change your entire perspective on the simple act of waking up. It changed everything because you've had a dose of truth added to the situation. It changes your whole perspective on everything. It's easy to put a positive spin on Christianity that doesn't offend anybody. All you have to do is teach grace. So nobody is offended by Jesus loves you. Hey, dude, chill with the hate. It doesn't really happen a whole lot. Nobody's offended by, hey, God wants to bless your marriage. God wants you to have an amazing family. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants to bless your life. 
Nobody's like, whoa, whoa, chill, man, with the legalism. That doesn't happen a lot. What's offensive is Jesus loves you. And that's amazing because there's no reason for him to love you. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I like the first part. You should have just put a period at halfway through that sentence and I would have been with you. It's not offensive to say, hey, God wants to do amazing things in your life, which is amazing because from a spiritual perspective, you've done everything possible to destroy your life. That's offensive. Jesus wants to save you. That's, that's offensive. I don't need saving. I don't need saving. Grace sells, but when you add the truth to it, it becomes a lot more troublesome, a lot less palatable to a lot of people. When Jesus would share truth, people would say things like, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard teaching. And that's when Jesus would tell people things like, narrow is the road. Only a few people find it. Small is the gate into my kingdom. Only a few people are going to find it, is what Jesus says. Grace and truth. Without the truth, you can't appreciate the grace. Without grace, the truth is just a description of our hopeless situation. But Jesus came full of grace and truth. He came with enough truth to let us know the reality of our situation. And he came with the grace that only he could offer because he was the only one who could offer a solution to our problem. Only Jesus. So let's jump in to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Verses 1 through 5 in the original Greek are one sentence. If you were here for our study in chapter 1, you'll remember Paul, the author of Ephesians, loves run-on sentences, has an utter disdain for proper punctuation and grammar, and loves stringing things together. So verses 1 through 5 are all one sentence, one idea in the original Greek. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 3 together right now. Paul says, And you, speaking of all of us, he made alive who were dead. If you're into underlining, you're going to want to underline dead. Who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul is trying to help us understand that we were born under a death sentence. We were born under a death sentence. We were dead men walking. We were dead women walking. From the moment we were born, the moment we took our first breath in this life, our sins and our trespasses were on us. They were written on us. They marked us like a prisoner's number on the back of his uniform on death row. We were marked for death from the moment we were born. Our sins are simply all the things we've done to reject God's ways in favor of our own. When you really start thinking about that definition, you realize, well, that, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff in my life. It's a lot of stuff in my life. But that's what sin is. Sin is everything you do, everything you think, every action you take where you are basically choosing your way instead of God's. Your way instead of God's. You're saying, I'm going to call the shots in my life rather than God. Those are sins. Trespasses are, are basically when you violate God's borders. So just like we have rules, our kids cycle behind our house and jump over 
pallets on their bikes and do all kinds of things, and they have a bike gang that is made up of people eight years old and under in the back of our house. It's awesome. But they know they are not allowed past the light post at the end of our back alley. That is a border. If they go past that, they are guilty of trespasses. And the wrath of dad shall descend upon them with mightiness. So that's a border. And if they cross it, they've trespassed. In our own life, God through his word has revealed to us all these borders, not to limit us, but to stop us from hurting ourselves. You see, God puts fences and borders at places like the end of a cliff. And when we go past them, we hurt ourselves and we trespass against God. Sins and trespasses are all the things that have separated us from God and marked us for death, identified us as enemies of God from the moment we're born. When Adam and Eve sinned, they introduced sin into the literal DNA of the human race. Into the literal DNA. And what that means is that after Adam and Eve, every child that's been born is now born focused on themselves first and God second. They indulge their own needs and wants first and they take care of God second, if at all. Before sin entered the world, God was our first priority. He made us that way, but we said no. And so sin entered the DNA of the human race. And from the moment a child is born, they are born predisposed towards themselves. It's their default setting. It's their default setting. And I really want you to understand something important about our faith and about the truth of the situation. The situation is, God doesn't send people to hell. We're going there all on our own. That's our default destination. That's our default location. We are born in a state of rejecting God. We've chosen our own course. That's our default setting. God is the savior. He's the rescuer. He's not the condemner of people. That's where we're going if he doesn't even get involved in the process at all. But as we'll find out, he does. He does. Paul wants the Ephesians and us to understand the reality, the truth of our situation, that we're on course for eternal death. And and when Paul says death, he's not talking about death like you die, you're done, you don't have any thoughts or consciousness anymore. He's talking about a state of death that is active. Everything we read about in Ephesians 1, all the good things God has stored up for us, As good as those things are, the alternative is equally terrible and awful. Paul's talking about a separation from God that is active, that can be experienced and will be experienced for eternity. And if you're thinking it's scary, it it is. It really is. It really is terrifying. Let's look at verse 2 again. Speaking of our sins and trespasses, Paul says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul lets us know that before God or without God, we're simply in the flow of this world. We're just walking around in the flow of this world. Have you ever heard the expression used to describe someone who's a free spirit? And they say, you know, where are you going? Wherever the wind blows, man. And I always find it amusing. As I was studying this week, I realized we use that as an analogy for a free spirit. But the truth is that there's no freedom in that at all. You're a complete slave to wherever the wind blows. See, it all depends on your perspective. Satan wants you to look at it and say, I'm free, man. I'm a free spirit. No, you're not a free spirit. You don't move unless the wind blows. 
And when it blows, you just go wherever it blows. Yeah, you're a complete individual, just like everybody else who gets blown by the wind, who gets carried by the current of the culture that we're in. In the original language, that term walked implies an aimless wandering. An aimless wandering. This is the way you walked. You were like a zombie walking around the world, wandering aimlessly. And the idea in, in the original Greek behind the course of this world is the word wind. The imagery is, is just someone being blown around, like we talked about, with no sense of direction or purpose, aimlessly wandering through this life. And, and who is it? Who is it who's making this wind blow in our world today? Who's setting the course of culture? Who's controlling the flow? It's Satan, and it's real. He's real, he's alive and well. And he is setting the flow of culture. He is deciding which way the wind blows in our culture. And Paul says, guys, I need you to understand, before Christ, or if you're without Christ, you are being blown around by the wind of this world that is controlled by Satan. You're literally under the control of Satan. He's controlling media, he's controlling public opinion, he's controlling everyone who doesn't belong to Jesus in the direction he wants them to go. And if you think you're staying stationary, Paul would say that there's no such thing as being still spiritually. You are either in Christ and you're flowing through life with Christ or you are in the flow of this world, being blown by the wind that Satan is controlling. Paul says that's the reality, but don't think you're staying in one place. You're being moved by God or you're being moved by Satan. So this is a hard word that Paul is sharing. But here's the good news, the long term for us. When Jesus rose from the dead, when he rose from the dead, he took back the title deed for this earth. And he has it. And he said, I'm going to wait a little while longer before I come back so that people will have a chance to know me and choose to follow me. He's got the title deed in his hand, and in the book of Revelation, it describes the day when Jesus says, I'm going to cash this in. And he comes back, and he takes over the world again. He says, this is mine. The same way that Satan has it right now, it's going to belong to Jesus one day at the time of his choosing. I wish we had more time to get into that. But we got to keep going. Paul wants us to understand this is the truth. If you're not under the leadership of Jesus, you're under the leadership of Satan. Bottom line, under the leadership of Satan. That's a heavy, heavy word. Put this on your outline. Paul, Paul wants us to know that in verses 1 and 2, he's saying this is where you were. And in verse 3, he says this is where we were. So verse 2, he says this is where you were, Ephesian church. This is what your life was. He says verse 3, he begins to include himself. He says I was the same way. I was just like you. I was in that same position. Paul is saying this is true for every single one of us. That's why scripture says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We're in a bad situation. In verse three, Paul keeps going and he talks about the sons of disobedience who are simply the people today who still reject Christ. Anybody who's not following Christ is lumped in with the sons of disobedience. And verse three says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, you're gonna to wanna to underline this in your Bibles, children of wrath, just as the others. Children of wrath. Paul is saying we were completely controlled by this sin nature in us, this base instinct. Completely controlled. It's the reason why we do things that cause pain in our lives and then go do them again. It's the reason why 
when we don't have Christ in the center of our lives, we get into relationships that hurt us, get out of them, and then go in and repeat the cycle all over again. That's why that happens. That's why it happens, because we're completely controlled by our sin nature. We're being controlled by someone. And if it's not Christ, you can figure out who it is. We were, and you've got this underlined in your Bibles now, by nature children of wrath. Wrath is a scary word if you haven't figured it out. If I said to you, hey, you know, come over, have a cup of coffee. Sure, 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 Jeff, what do you want to talk about? Um, this is more uh, me sharing a little wrath with you is kind of what I'm hoping for. You're probably not showing up for the meeting, probably. Just come over, have a little coffee, a little wrath, you know, see what happens. So wrath is a bad, bad thing. Nobody wants wrath. Nobody's looking for more wrath in their life. We've spoken about before how God has every right to have perfection as his moral standard. God has every right to have perfection as his moral standard because he is perfect. He's got every right. We spoke about how in our culture, we have a moral standard that's reflected in our legal system. We have a right to have a moral standard in our culture because we've said, as a group of people, we all agree these things are bad. That's our collective moral compass. And so if you violate these things, which are only based on our morality as flawed people, we say you're, you're a criminal and you need to be punished. So our sense of morality comes from our own morality and our own moral standards. Now imagine a God who's perfect and imagine what his moral standard is. It's perfection. And he has every right to have that as his moral standard. But that leaves us in a very, very bad place. Because when we are disobedient and rebellious and we reject him, we create wrath for ourselves. Wrath is the response of God that desires justice. Wrath is what gets dealt out by our justice system. It's wrath. It's saying, this is what you deserve. This isn't just blind anger. This is what you deserve for what you've done. So when we rebel against God consciously, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. We're born sinful. We're born children of wrath. And so our sins, everything we've done was recorded, was written down, and God said, we're going to deal with this on one day, and the Bible calls it the day of judgment. When you and I die, we're all going to arrive at the same place at the same time at this place the Bible calls the day of judgment. And God's going to pull out that book and say, okay, here's all the sin. Here's all the trespasses. They've all stored up. He's going to say, there's a lot of wrath stored up for you. There's a lot of wrath stored up for you. You know, it's like 10 Encyclopedia Britannica sets worth of recorded sins and trespasses for you. Here comes the wrath. Paul says that was the situation you were in. That's the situation you were in. It's all been written down. And I tell you the truth, you should be scared about the prospect of facing the wrath of God. I am. I am. Scripture says that's an appropriate response to the idea of the wrath of God. Jesus shared something in Matthew 10, 28 that doesn't get a lot of airtime because it's not the super gracious Jesus that everybody loves who carries you on the beach when you can't walk anymore. This is more of the truth, Jesus. That's a total inside Christian joke, I just realized. Related to the poem, Footprints, if you didn't pick up on that. Go look at home later. If you've never read it, you'll have a good laugh. Um, so Jesus says this, Matthew 10, 28. This is the truth, Jesus speaking. Somebody talks about being scared. Somebody is 
talking about a situation about like, man, I, I don't know if I can follow you. What is it going to cost? What are people going to think? And Jesus is, I think he's in a truth mood when this person shares this. And Jesus says, let me give you a little perspective. And they're like, oh, awesome. Jesus, you're going to tell me how I'm like a child and you love to hold me in your arms. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what Jesus says. He says, you're, you're scared of somebody killing you on the earth? They can't take your soul. You should be scared of the one who can take your body and your soul. That's perspective. And Jesus is speaking from the perspective of eternity. He's saying, if you understood how brief this life is in comparison to eternity, you'd understand that I'm not being mean when I say, if you die, it's not that big of a deal. Like, that's what Jesus is literally saying. He's like, because the next second after you die, when you see where you are, you're going to go, whoa. Talk about an upgrade. Talk about an upgrade. Like, is this a six-pack? This is awesome, you know? It's going to be amazing. Jesus says we need to have the right perspective on fear. So if you haven't figured it out, verses one through three, you were in or you are in a bad situation, right? I think we're all on the same page. You're in a bad situation. You're separated from God. All your sins, everything you do wrong is being stored up, tallied up, so that you can get all the wrath at once for eternity. You're gonna wanna underline this in your Bible because these are probably two most important words in the entire Bible. Verse four, but God, but God. This is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth. You're in a bad situation, but God. I mean, you know, right about then we needed a but God. We needed a but God. Let me hear you say amen to that. Come on, somebody say amen. We needed a but God. This is what it says. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us, underline this word, alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You might want to go back to verse 1 as well and underline that word, alive. And you, it says in verse 1, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Jesus has done for you and I. Paul is using this emphatic language because he wants you to understand Jesus didn't come to take your life from better to best. He didn't come to take your life from average to good. He didn't come to improve your situation. He didn't come to be the ultimate hobby. He didn't come to improve your self-esteem. Jesus came to take you from death into life. That's the comparison Paul is making. You were completely dead, and now you're alive. That's the comparison that Paul wants us to understand. Do you understand what Jesus has really done for you? Do you understand how your story was going to end if there hadn't been a but God? Do you understand what it cost Jesus for those words, but God, to appear in verse four of Ephesians. you have any idea what it cost him to be able to write the words, but God? It cost him everything. We were by nature children of wrath. 
We deserved it. We were getting what we deserved. The truth is, if we got it, we wouldn't have had a legitimate complaint. What's our complaint going to be? Oh, I didn't do it? Yeah, you did. I'm God. I know you did it. It's recorded here. Daytime. Witnesses. Everything. We'd have no case. So all that wrath that is stored up for us, if you imagine it being poured like liquid into a cup, all that wrath is sitting there for everyone past, present, and future. Imagine that sitting on a shelf figuratively in heaven. And this is what happens. The Trinity, God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit get together and the Father says, we're going to do something about this. And they take all that wrath which was stored up, was going to be dealt out by the Father to you and I, every other person. And they put it all into one giant cup. And that's the cup that Jesus drinks from on the cross. And it is poured out. And it's poured out on Jesus instead of you. It's poured out on Jesus instead of me. That's why Jesus says as he's praying and and sweating drops of blood in the garden the night before he's taken away, by the angry mob to begin the process to his crucifixion. That's why Jesus says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup be taken from me. He's talking about the cup of wrath, which has the sin of human history, past, present, and future, stored up in it. That's the cup that Jesus is being asked to drink from by the Father. All of it. All of it. And what you see on the cross is the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father, being poured out on God the Son, Jesus, instead of you and I. That's what's happening on the cross. And um, we're not done our study, but I just want to stop and, uh, and just pray for a minute. Um, I don't know how to go on without just stopping and saying thank you to God. So let, let's just pray real quick. Um, Father, we just want to stop and, and say thank you to you. Um, God, when we, when we understand where we were, maybe for some of us when we understand where we are, we had, we had no hope. We were on course to get what we deserved, but you, but God, but Jesus, you intervened. And we can't even begin to understand uh, what you went through for us on the cross, what it cost you. Uh, but I pray for all of us, God, in this room, in this moment, this day, would you give us a fuller understanding of what you've done for us? Um, Because nothing you ask of us seems out of line when we begin to understand what you've done for us, Jesus. So, So thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We were dead. We were dead. And you made us alive. We love you so much. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen. Let's continue. When you, when you talk about the wrath of God, a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people don't like it when you talk about the wrath of God. You hear things like, man, that's, that's emotionally manipulative. That's fear-mongering. You know, you're, you're making people scared. That's very negative. And again, by way of analogy, can you imagine somebody's house being on fire? They're sleeping in it. You run out yelling, your house is on fire. Get out, get out. And the neighbor comes out and says, whoa, dude, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. You know, <laughs> calm down. He, he's having a good time, a very peaceful sleep, and you're here to interrupt it with all this negativity. That's not really cool. 
That situation doesn't happen a whole lot. It doesn't happen a whole lot that someone acquires a terminal illness and the, the doctor is looking at the x-ray and the doctor says to the nurse, this, this is bad, they've got two months to live. And the nurse says, wow, how are you going to tell them? And the doctor says, I'm probably not going to tell them. Well, why? Well, one thing I've learned in this profession is people don't like bad news. <laughs> what? It's just not true. And, and what you find is that the kindest, most caring, most loving thing you can do is tell people the truth and share the truth, especially when eternal life is what's at stake. That's the most caring thing you can do. And as a pastor, my greatest fear, my greatest fear is what Jesus says about the day of judgment. Jesus says there'll be many on that day who'll say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. And I believe the reason for a lot of that is that there's a lot of places you can go to hear just grace, just grace, just grace. And the thing about grace is you think, what a cool addition to my life. But when you hear the truth, you realize it's not an addition to my life, it is my life. I'm dead without this. I'm dead without this. And that changes your entire perspective on your whole existence. You have to have the truth so that you can appreciate the grace you have to. And so because I care, because I love you, I want you to know if, you, if you're not saved, if you've not said, Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for drinking from that cup of wrath so that I don't have to. Thank you, Jesus. If you've never said, I believe that, I want you to be in my place when it comes to dealing with wrath. I'll accept you as my substitute. If you haven't done that, I need you to know the truth. The cup of wrath is still waiting for you. It is. And I say that because that's the truth. And here's another part, okay? So imagine the wrath that God has stored up for us just from his moral standard, okay? Now what kind of wrath do you think we stir up in God when he says, I'm gonna fix this problem at the cost of the life of my only begotten son? And he, Jesus lays down his life and we say, thanks, I'll think about it another day. I think the wrath that that generates is more terrifying than all the sin you'll do in your whole life. Scripture talks about that being the only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. And I think that God loved us while we were still enemies. But I don't think he's cool with us taking the sacrifice of his son lightly or putting it off for another day because he knows what it costs Jesus. He knows what it costs Jesus. If you're not at peace with God today, do not leave here. Do not leave here putting that off for another day. I hope that through the writings of Paul in Ephesians, you're having the realization, this is urgent. This is really, really urgent. Verse one through three is where you are without Christ. Read it again and ask the question, how long are you cool hanging out in that place? You don't, you don't want to leave here in that place. You really, really don't. While we were dead, while we were enemies of God, 
while we were rejecting Jesus, he died for us. While we were doing all that, he died for us. That is why it's called amazing grace. We should have judgment, we should have wrath, we should have condemnation, and instead, we have eternal life, everlasting hope, everlasting enjoyment in the presence of God. That's what we have instead. That's the definition of grace is undeserved kindness. Undeserved kindness. It's why we love Jesus so much. It's why we try to make everything here about him. It's why we love him so much. There's no one like him. There is no one like him. And in comparison to what he's done for you, there is nothing else worth giving your life to. There's nothing else worth giving your life for. There's no one like Jesus. He deserves all of us. Also in verse five it says, by grace you've been saved. And my hope today is that when we leave, we all leave with a new understanding and appreciation of what we've been saved from. We have been saved from something, from something terrible. We've been saved from it. But as it always is with Jesus, there's more. Uh, You're gonna find with Jesus, there's always a bonus track. Always a bonus track. Verse six, it keeps going. And it says, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And, and even when I was studying, this is, this is the part for me where I, I just fell apart even studying this and uh, having a hard time keeping it together now because I need you to understand what this is saying about Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus gave his life for us. The power of God, the power of the Father raised him from the dead, victorious over death. And that the Father was so pleased with Jesus and his obedience. Scripture says it gave him the throne above all thrones, the name above all names, created the highest place in all eternity and existence for Jesus. And the Father said, you take that place. That's where you're gonna sit. And Jesus turns around to us and says, come sit with me. It's, it's too much if you get it. It's too much. He's too kind. He's too good. He says, come up here and sit with me. Sit with me. And the more you read in Scripture, the more you find things that seem almost blasphemous because they're so amazing. They're so ridiculous. In Romans It says the idea is that Jesus would be the firstborn from the dead among many brethren. And I've shared this before. The idea is that what awaits us in eternity is an existence like Jesus. And what I mean is that you look at me now and you look at Jesus and you're like, there are some differences I'm able to observe. Glaring differences. In eternity, when you look at Jesus and you look at us, you will say that must be his brother. That must be his sister. That's what it's talking about when it says, Jesus says, come up here and sit with me. Come up here and sit with me. It's mind-blowing. I I can't even find the words to describe that kind of kindness. I don't think the human mind could even dream that up. It's unbelievable. God has saved us to be eternal monuments to his kindness, eternal monuments to his kindness. The idea is that 
for all eternity, everything that ever was and has ever been will look at us sitting next to Jesus and say, they were by nature children of wrath. And now they're sitting next to Jesus. How great is the kindness of God. How great is the grace of God. And I'll sing that forever as they look at us sitting next to Jesus. That's what God has done. He's taken us flawed, broken, undeserving people and he's made us monuments to his kindness for eternity sitting beside him. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Verse eight, he says, for by grace, and you can underline grace, by grace you have been saved. And here it starts all coming together. The truth is the reality of our hopeless situation and grace is the work of Jesus that changed everything about our situation. By grace you have been saved through faith. You can underline the word faith. Our part in salvation is simply to believe that Jesus did it. It's simply to believe it. Just to say, I believe Jesus did that for me. I want him to be my Lord. That's our only part in this whole equation. So just so that we get it straight and we don't think, oh, so I bring faith to the table. Paul says, and that, talking about your faith, he says, and that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul says, even the faith you have to believe in God is a gift from God. And if you're saved today, you know what he's talking about. You can't describe it. It's not like you sat there and you said, you know, this all makes sense. What happens is, you suddenly realize that when you're hearing this, your soul is crying out within you, this is true, it just is. I know it in the depth of my being in a way I can't put words to, this is true, I know it. That's the gift of God to you, of faith. It's faith. Let's put it another way. Can a dead person have faith? A dead person can't do anything, can't do anything person who's lying on the table has been dead for 10 minutes and is miraculously resuscitated by a doctor doesn't wake up and say you're welcome I was trying really hard it doesn't happen you're dead you're completely at the mercy of somebody else to revive you we were dead and Paul says God breathed faith into you when you were dead so that you could believe and with the faith that he gave you you were able to receive him and when you received him, you were made alive. You were made alive. You have no part in this. A dead person has no faith. That's why in Romans 3.11, Paul says, there is none who seeks after God. None. Paul says, Paul says, let's get this straight. There's nobody out there looking for Jesus. Jesus is looking for them. If you're here today and you, you'd say, man, I'm here because I'm interested in Jesus. I'm looking. No, you're not looking. He's looking for you. That's why you're here. He's drawing you. He's calling you. He got you here so that he could give you this gift of faith and you could receive him. That's the way it works. The entire work of salvation belongs to Jesus. And the idea is that there's no glory in it for us. All the glory belongs to God. We can't even say, yeah, I had a 50% part in the process or God saved me, but I, I had it coming. I'm a really good person really good person. Paul says, you were dead. 
you were dead, good person. You know? A dead person is just a dead person. Nobody says that's a really good dead person or a really bad dead person. You're just a dead person. You're dead without God. That's why in Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Greek word for workmanship is poema, from which we get the word poem. And, and the idea is that we are God's poetry, is literally what Paul is saying. You are God's poetry. You might think, man, I don't feel like much of a poem. I feel like a poem that's like, roses are red, stuff, things, uh, yeah, whatever, dot, dot, dot. You might feel like that's your poem right now, but I want you to remember, God's not done writing your story yet. He's not done. And the ending is going to blow your mind. It's going to blow your mind. You're God's poetry, is what Paul says. When you've received Christ, you become a new being, a new creation. You have a new mind, a new heart. Everything is new. God goes to work getting your actions in line with what he's already done on the inside of you. That's what sanctification is. is, is it's saying, listen, you got the Holy Spirit in you now. Start acting like it. Start acting like it. He's in you. He loves you. He doesn't say, start acting like you love me, and then I'll talk about loving you. He says, I love you. Now start acting like it. Start acting like I love you. In Psalm 37, 4, David says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Here's the idea behind that. The idea is that as you begin walking with God, you begin living with God, you begin getting to know him, you literally become more like Jesus. We talked about it. it's that process that's completed when we arrive in his presence in heaven. We become like him, and we've started becoming like him now. And part of that process is the things that we want most in life start lining up with the things that he wants for us. So the things we want start lining up with the things he wants and it happens naturally. And, and here's what it means is, is I, I want to be a good dad to my kids. I want to be a good dad to my kids. I want them to know Jesus. I want them to understand they have a heavenly father who loves them because of the way I love them. God wants that too. God wants that too. We're totally in line. I, I want to be a good husband. I want to show the love of Jesus to my wife. That's what God wants too. I, I want to teach God's word so that people can know him more. That's what I want to do with my life. That's what God wants too. And I have all these other areas, they're not all lined up yet, but they're getting there. And you begin to find that whatever your occupation is, if you're in business, you'll begin to say, man, I, I just want to be somebody in business that people can trust. I don't want to be that person that when I tell them I'll do something, they have to make an appointment in their calendar to make sure I've actually done it a week later. I want to be somebody people can trust. I want to have that reputation. God says, yeah, that's what I want for you too. And you begin to have your desires line up with God's desires. It happens naturally. And here's the incredible part. When your desires and God's desires line up, God says, okay, now they can happen. Now they can happen. Now they can happen. But when your desires are Lamborghini, God's like, um, I'm thinking something a little more significant perhaps, you know. 
That's not a place to claim this verse. But as you find your desires and God's desires lining up, you're going to start finding that your desires go fulfilled. God meets them, and they actually happen. You get to see them happen in your life. That's the promise of God. It's, it's incredible. God tells us that these good things that he designed for us to do were prepared beforehand. And the idea is God planned these things for you to do before the universe was even created. So he didn't save you and say, okay, you're saved. Um, find something to do for like the next 70 years. He didn't say that. He said, okay, you're saved. Now let's start with you experiencing the best life you've ever experienced. Let's start checking off the desires of your heart. Let's start seeing them actually happen. Let's start seeing you be used by God to build God's kingdom on the earth earth, and simultaneously have your desires met. That's unbelievable. Your best life starts now when you are in Christ. That's the promise of God's word. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says this, speaking of the Lord. It says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before time began. The mind-blowing part that I don't have time to go into is when God created people, He knew what was going to happen. You ever thought about this? He knew what was going to happen with Adam and Eve. He knew it would cost him the life of Jesus to rectify the situation. And he created us anyway. Because God is that loving, he's that good, that he wanted to share his goodness with children. And so he was willing to pay the price to make that happen. And he wanted to share his goodness with children who would choose to respond to him. He didn't want robots. That's why he didn't just make more angels. He said, now I want people who are going to have options, but they're going to choose to love me. That's meaningful. And he did it anyway. He created us knowing what it would cost him. We're going to say this in closing. In, in 1 Peter 1.23, it says this about us. It says, we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Peter goes on to say, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The goodness that God put in Adam could be corrupted. Adam chose to have it corrupted. But God says this new nature, through what Jesus has done, this is incorruptible. Once I'm in you, this is forever. The cup of wrath is dealt with forever. Your sins are dealt with forever. Your eternal destination is secure forever. He says, these things that I've written down here, these are going to last forever. These are forever promises for you. Incorruptible, just like the word of God. And so if you're here today, and you're still dealing with the corruptible seed of Adam, I want to encourage you, man, be born again. Receive the new nature that Jesus has for you. He got you here. He got you here because he's seeking you. He's paid the price to get you here. Don't leave the same today. Don't leave the same. 